Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April 10th, 2016. The share ID for Friday, April 8th, is 8638. That's 8638. This morning, A Vision for You presents the greatest reservoirs of power known. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. These are the hideous four horsemen a compulsive overeater understands so well before recovery. One half of the compulsive overeater cries out, please free me from this bottomless pit of compulsive overeating. And the other half of this same compulsive overeater shrieks out in fear, how can I ever let go of my binge foods and compulsive overeating? Where will I ever find a sense of ease and comfort? There stands the compulsive overeater, finally cornered by her disease. There she stands, weakened by self-pity, bent down by worries, fears, doubts, burdened by insecurities, and discouragements, torn by resentments, prejudices, and hates, hampered by her sense of frustration and futility. There stands the compulsive overeater alone at the jumping-off place. Not so the compulsive overeater who comes into OA and the Big Book Program of Recovery. There she is given faith and hope in a higher power. There she meets the generous gift of understanding. There she finds the great warm cloak of OA friendship. There she finds the greatest reservoirs of power known. With us today to speak about these reservoirs of power is Sharon R.S., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Sharon is committed to our 12-step way of life, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with us this morning. Welcome to you, Sharon R.S. Thank you, Leah. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here today. Uh, I want to talk about these great powers, but first I want to uh, set some ground, some background uh, out of the... the uh, text, a lack of power was our dilemma, it says on page 45 of the big book, our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient, they failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power which we could, by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously, but where and how were we to find this power? And of course, that's why we're here. Uh, the and that's why we have this book. It's uh, I was thinking like in quicksand when I came into the recovery program, and I couldn't stop eating. The doctors couldn't help me stop. Love couldn't help me stop. Nothing. I was just 
compelled to eat. Even when I didn't want to, I would drive. Uh, There was a certain binge food that I really wanted. And I literally bought all of it from all the stores. There was not around me. And then I'd have to drive for miles. And then I couldn't find it because um, I had bought it all up. And, and And I had to go move on to the next thing until they could resupply. And I, I kind of think after I got recovered, it was very disappointing for them. They had to reassess their uh, stock needs. But I, I couldn't stop. I couldn't help myself. In the dead of the late into the night, I'd have to get up and go, uh, and probably uh, into places that weren't safe just to get those that those that binge food that I just had to have. And I needed something that would keep me from from uh, from continuing in that pattern. Um, I needed to change. On page 567 of the big book, it says that the terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book. Uh, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. So here I, I came to the rooms and I found hope that, there, that change was possible. Personality change, it says, a personality change. Now, I want to be perfectly honest with you. I came into the rooms because I couldn't stop eating. I couldn't help myself. I was destroying myself. And probably if I could have kept eating and kept my health, I would have kept kept doing the same crazy things. But my health started to fail. And I was getting to the point where... I couldn't go on living the way I was eating because I was killing myself. And then the fear of dying, not because I'm afraid of dying, because quite honestly, in some ways, my eating uh, addiction was, was almost a death wish. I was afraid of living, and so I ate because I couldn't just die. And so I was basically killing myself by eating um, because I didn't have a way out of life. I didn't really want to live life, um, at least not on life's terms. If I could have lived life on my terms, you know, the way I wanted it to be, I would have, I, perhaps that would have been acceptable. But I couldn't have the life I wanted. I couldn't have it my way. And so I was just getting by and, and to soothe Half the time I began eating to comfort myself, and then it took over, and it was like a cancer on my soul. Uh, it was slowly eating me alive. And I, um, so I came to the room to keep from dying uh, or, or to keep away the pain. And, um, but then I, I got some recovery in OA uh, 
any room, and, and I ended up getting married, and I had uh, children, and then I got back into the food, and I couldn't stop, and I literally was in and out of the emergency room because I'm a person who has physical allergies to food in addition to, um, I have the physical allergy that compels me to, to keep eating it. I also have a physical allergy that causes things like asthma and uh, arthritic-like symptoms, bloating. So I was in and out of the emergency room because of my disease. And then my kidneys began to fail, and uh, they were going to do a biopsy. The doctor told me there's no, we've never seen anyone who has this disease recover without, and stay recovered without medication, and so what we're going to have to do, we have to do a kidney biopsy so that we can find out how severe the problem is and what medications we're going to have to give to you, uh, and uh, it's probably going to be a lifelong, it was a life sentence, and my mother, who was in her 70s at the time, she said to me, Sharon, who is going to take care of those kids? Who is going to take care of them? And I had two kids, two little kids. My youngest was eight months old, and my oldest was uh, was he three by then. And I didn't, and so I, my sponsor from OA said to me, um, you know, kind of pointed me in the direction of, of a way to get recovered. And in that recovery program, they brought me to the big book in a deep and serious way. And I haven't left there since. And what I have learned is that I need change. There is hope. There is a way for permanent change. The power that I need is available to me. But I have to do some things. I have to bring some things to the table. And one of the things that I had to accept is that I can't change and stay the same. I know that sounds like a profound thought, a very obvious thought. But there's parts of me that want want to stay the same, and yet I want what I get when I change. What does that mean? I want life. I still want it life on my terms. Uh, and I'm I'm saying this initially. I was willing to do anything, but then as time went on, I wanted to then pick up the mantle, pick up, go back to where I left off. I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be when I was eating. I wanted the life I wanted when I was eating. And the truth is, is that what the big book teaches me is I need a personality change. I need a new way of thinking, a new way of of uh, acting upon life rather than reacting to it. So what do I need to do in order to get this recovery 
in order to get the power that I need to recover from a life-threatening disease. So the steps tell us what we need to do. We have to have a large amount of willingness. That's the first, that's kind of the first thing that I have to be willing to change. And there's what, in the, in, the, in, the, in the 12 and 12 on page 34, there's only one key, and it is called willingness. Willingness. I have to have that willingness. And uh, it says we fail, um, it, it says, through self-will, though self-will may slam it shut again, the door of willingness. As it frequently does, it will always respond the moment we again pick up the key of willingness. So I I wanted to say that. It's on that same page on page 34 in the 12 and 12. I wanted to say that because this recovery isn't something that we get. We're recovered and and then we can just stop and go on with our lives. It's a new life. It's a new way of living. We have to learn this life. But we still have the old life with us while we're trying to open up to the new life. And so that new old life is, the, is what slams the door shut. Our old way of thinking keeps wanting to come back. Some people call it self, self-will. Um, but whatever it is, it, we have to change, we need power to change, and in order to get that power, we need to have the willingness to change, and we have to accept that it's not going to be, there's nowhere that you're going to get a magic pill, a magic a shot, it's going to take effort and work, and um, so that when we, we have to be willing to Keep trying no matter what. Keep trying. Keep working. Keep pushing forward. Keep coming back over and over again. On uh, page 95 of the 12 and 12, uh, it's in step 10. It says, an honest regret for harms done, a genuine gratitude for blessings received, and a willingness to try for better things tomorrow will be the permanent assets we shall seek. So this permanent, this is the new life, is that we're permanently working every day. We never rest on our laurels. It's never over. It's a constant growth, a constant uh, progression. So, so we need willingness. We need a change in our attitude. On page 27 uh, in the big book, it says, he can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude, an attitude. And it's, um, in uh, the big book also, um, and Dr., in the, um, uh, in the doctor's opinion, it says some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help, 
let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. And this is someone who was a chronic alcoholic uh, of the worst kind, and he was trying to uh, get help. He uh, traveled to Europe to get recovery, and, uh, and he stayed for a year. He thought, there's no way I'm going to relapse now. He got back to the United States and was soon back into the alcohol. He went back to the doctor again. The doctor said to him, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. I want to pause here. This is exactly where I was when I came into this program. I was totally hopeless. There was no help for me. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clank. I tried everything for decades to get away from this addiction, and I could not. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Can I live free of food? Is it possible me, who has slipped and slid and relapsed and failed over and over through my own strength? I came into the program. I thought I had the strength, but I just, I thought I had it, and then I failed over and over again. Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. There that word is, change, rearrangement. We can't stay the same and change at the same time. We have to be available to be changed fundamentally down to the tips of our toes from the, and to the top of our heads. Every aspect of us has to be made available to be changed. Changed. You can't hold on to your old ideas and be changed at the same time. We have to let go. So that it is possible. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes. That looks like everything about me. I have to be willing to change. And the truth is, I think it's me that I'm having to let go of. What happens to me if I get rid of all my old ideas. Well, the truth is that's just a bunch of confusion that I had. Anybody who's eating themselves to death is not, does not have the right attitude, does not have the right ideas. And the emotions that are coming out of me are out of other and not me. 
So letting go of my old ideas, my old way of thinking, my old way of acting, is not letting go of me. It's letting go of that which is killing me. Therefore, I'm letting go of the disease. I'm letting go of the death wish. And I'm reaching out to life. I'm saying yes to living. So it says that ideas, emotion, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast aside. I just let go of that. What's amazing is that it can happen in an instant, cast aside, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin. It's a beginning. It's not an end. It's a beginning. Begin to dominate them. Dominate. Now, that means that there's those other voices that are constantly going to try and pull us back. But there's going to be a domination, a dominant force. And that's this new way of living, new attitudes and conceptions. In fact, he said, I have been trying to produce some of these same emotional rearrangements within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful. But I have never seen, I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. So I was hopeless. This was a medical professional. He said to, um, uh, uh, now I can't think of his name, but he said to, um, uh, anyway, I'm sure some of you are trying to yell at me what the name is, but anyway, they said to him, he, 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 he was hopeless. And he said the same thing. That was my situation. We've never seen anyone with your medical condition recover. Only help is we'll we'll, put, we'll give you some remedial help, with some, uh, and um, uh, we'll we'll uh, help you feel better, palliative care. But you will always have uh, kidney failure because of the way you've managed your your food and manage your life. It's, it's uh, broken your body down to such an extent. It's beyond recovery, complete recovery. But uh, on page 143, it says, uh, to get over um, drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. And I had to get to that point where I was willing to have with all my old way, uh, I let go of the old way, page uh, uh, the 12 and 12 and step 8. It is an attitude which can only be changed by a deep and honest search of our motives and actions. So I had to be willing to listen, to take instructions, to take action. Uh, so for practicing AAs, and this is in page 24, the 12 and 12, for practicing AAs remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and action that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of taking. So I have to stop eating. 
and I had to take some action. But how do I do that when I'm eating every single day, when, when my habit, I'm habituated into eating? I reach for it when I'm not even thinking. I do it, uh, and even if I do get a thought, it goes right to the eating. There's no gap for me. How do I change? So in the big book, it outlines four, you know, major uh, uh, phases that I, that I went through in order to get recovery. And the first was admitting that I was powerless and recognizing that I needed a new way of living. And it's so critical to accept that I need a new way of living. It's critical that I accept that I'm powerless, powerless over food, and that I need a new way of living. I need power, and I need a new way of living. I admitted I was powerless over food and that my life had become unmanageable. So... I need power, and then I need I and I need to find a way to have this manageable life, and I need to come to that point that I need help not only to get over food, but in order to live life. I need to know how do what do I do? How do I do this? And the second thing, so the four areas that I needed. Uh, the four phases. First is this admission, and then two, I had to, to submit my will and my life, my will and my life, not just my will, not just the food, but my entire life. That was the hardest thing for me. Now, I had this life that was a shipwreck, right? I had this life that was virtually dying. I was killing myself, yet I got to the point where I, I was, do you mean I have to give up my whole life? Well, what? It, it, I mean, it's, you know, hardly if you took it to the goodwill, they wouldn't want it. And yet, I'm trying to hold on to some old ideas. I don't want to listen. I don't want you telling me what to do. But I did get to the point where I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired that I surrendered. I submitted. Uh, my will, I'm willing to accept it. And by the grace of God, I was willing to listen and to accept help from others. Uh, then the, the third the third area, the third uh, phase that I had to go through was I had to make restitution to those I had harmed and be restored to right relationships. And how did, uh, I had to uh, uh, admit, first of all, that I have hurt anybody because I was living in a bubble in my mind. I, I, didn't, I couldn't even see that I had harmed anyone. I was so deceived. So I had, to, I had to accept my deception. I had to really accept that I was wrong, that I had been wrong. I was wrong in, in, in the way I was living. I was wrong in the way I was acting and treating people, I had to accept that I had resentments and anger. I didn't even feel I had any resentments. I was so numbed out. So there was a lot of acceptance that I had to go through. 
of feeling, of knowing how wrong, how fundamentally to my core, oh, was this gut-wrenching. But I had to do it because I had children that I that needed to live. And if I didn't do it, my children were going to have to suffer what I suffered. And a lot of my resentment is because people hadn't given me the right way of living. And so I was resentful because I hadn't received a better way of living. And so I was determined that I was going to do the best I could so that I didn't pass this crazy on to my children. So I had to do gut-wrenching, painful work of admitting that I had been wrong, that I was wrong, that I needed new truth, new ways. And then I had to do as best I could to, to make up for what I had done. And then the fourth phase was that I had to accept that I had to spread the message. I had to give back. Now, these, I put them in phases because the 12 steps work together. You know, I don't have to just go one, two, three, four. Sometimes I do one, two, three, four, five, six, working on 12 all the time, working on 11 while I'm working on one, two, three, because this is a lifelong way of living. I'm constantly working in steps, Sometimes, and I'm always, I'm always doing it. Never, I never let go of one in order to do another. I'm always holding on all these steps all the time. We spread the message of OA. That's our fourth phase. But I started right away. I was taught to make phone calls, calling the, the other people, calling ones who don't have, spreading the word, bringing others in, inviting them to get what I had had, what I have. And, and, and I start working the steps, working the principles of the program in my everyday life, in my, uh, with my family, with my children, with each other, uh, helping them to recover as I, um, helping others to recover and helping them to get to the place where they're helping others and, we, and continuing to make progress, continuing to make progress. I, I, uh, step six, uh, page 68 of the 12 and 12, and this is, um, excuse me, where people get uh, caught up and stuck sometimes at step six, um, that transition into the new way of living. And some people get trapped on step four, uh, cleaning up the life, admitting our issues and our problems. But some people find a way to get through step four. They do their step five, but they really can never accept and adopt this new way of living. And in step six, it says on page 68, the only urgent thing is that we make a beginning and keep trying. Don't give up. Keep trying. Don't give up. You go back over and over. You get on your knees. You pray. You go meditate. You try. That's why we don't just always, um, uh, sometimes you need to do the prayer meditation while you're doing your step one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, because we can find the necessary power that we need to recover. And I'm going to tell you that secret, but I'm still laying the groundwork. The only urgent thing is that we make a beginning and keep trying, it says on page 68. We shall need to raise our eyes toward perfection 
and be ready to walk in that direction. It will seldom, we, we look toward perfection, but the only step we can do perfectly is step one. Um, so uh, here in, in, it says, we shall need to make a brand new venture into open-mindedness. So what happens? Keep trying. If, if you know, like I was saying, I, I keep finding new levels of, of surrender, new levels of submission that I have to take. I keep finding new blocks. I keep understanding myself deeper and deeper. One thing that I found out about myself as I dug into, as I, you know, ran into a block and where the old self comes up and tries to run the show again, I, I had to dig into my past. And I found out that when I was a baby, my mother had had a nervous breakdown. And I, I found, I realized that there were some things that happened to me before my memory that I needed to deal with and accept. And so some of the blocks and resistance that I had in recovery came from things I didn't even know had happened to me. And so I had to have further surrender and further acceptance, and I had to be willing more to say, tell me what to do, because I'm resisting and I'm trying to do what I want to do. And I, when I do what I want to do, it leads to, to destruction and death, and it kills me. It's a cancer of my soul. And I need to be told so I can follow that light out of this hell hole that I have created for myself. So I had to be willing to have an open mind to uh, venture. It's a venture. I'm not going to die if I follow what. I'm told to do by my sponsors and other recovered in this program. It's a light being to me. What's going to kill me is doing what I want, when I want, how I want, telling you what I think I need to do, how I need to do it. That's when I die. That's when I go to hell because that's where I was when I was doing. The reason I'm in this room is because I was doing my way. And so if I keep wanting to do my way, I'm going to keep getting what I got, and I'm going to go round and around in that pit, and I'm going to wonder why I can't get recovered, and I'm going to keep going back and having to do step one over and over again. We shall need a brand new venture into open-mindedness. Now, this is while we're in the program, we're going to have to have new ventures in open-mindedness. We shall need to raise our eyes toward perfection. We, we will never get it except except in admitting powerlessness. But we need to be ready to walk in the direction that we, when we see the light, there's more to learn, there's more to know. It will seldom matter how haltingly we walk. So we have to be willing to forgive ourselves, forgive our imperfections, forgive our humanity, our own humanity, because our old self tells us we need to know it all, at least my old self. I could hardly get this program because I knew so much. I knew it all. I knew how to recover. I could tell you everything. I could show you the way. Yet I had to hell within hell myself. So I had to let go. I had the only question I had to answer will be, are we ready? Am I ready? For a new way. 
and accepting these defects of character, these imperfections. And and uh, it says, this is the exact point, page 69, at which we abandon limited objectives and move toward God's will for us. What is God's will for me? And um, that is what we put off our way of living and we accept a new way of living, God's way of living. And we let go of, uh, on page 162, I mean, on 102 of the big book, your job now is to be in the place where you be, may be of maximum helpfulness to others. We need to find out what God's will is for us and then do it. Now, what are these powers? Because the truth is, I've outlined this huge program, all these phases. How do I do this? I need power to do it. And guess what? The power is available. How do we get it? Where is it? Page 569 of the big book. And I'm going to wait a minute because you might want to turn there with me. Page 569, the medical view. Now, here I come full circle because medical science couldn't help me except for to give me palliative care. They couldn't cure me. They could only make me feel better. They could help me with painkillers. They could, they could uh, help uh, uh, get some of the fluid off of me when, when my kidneys couldn't do it. But they couldn't cure my disease because I had a disease of the mind as well as the body. I had a mind that uh, had the allergy of the mind and the, uh, uh, and the allergy of the body, the, the obsession of the mind. They couldn't cure me. But they, do, they did come to believe, the medical profession, Dr. Foster Kennedy in the second paragraph, he was a neurologist, dealt with the mind. She said the organization of Alcoholics Anonymous is programmed that's outlined this new way of living that's been presented to me. It says it calls on two of the greatest reservoirs of power known to man. There is power available to me. Religion and that instinct for association with one's fellows, the herd instinct. He says that I think our profession must take appreciative cognizance cognizance of this great therapeutic weapon. Now it says this great therapeutic weapon, the two go together. It's one weapon with two parts. If we do not do so, we will stand convicted of emotional sterility and of having lost the faith that moves mountains. That's what I need. Because I had a darkness in my life. It was like a mountain. It was unsurmountable. It was bigger than Kilimanjaro. It was, it was, I couldn't scale it. I couldn't get over it. Without which medicine can do little. So medicine couldn't cure me. 
But now I have to tell you, I, I, I go to doctors. I have medicine for my allergy that, allergies that when I was in the food, it couldn't, it, it really didn't help much, but now it helps. Because I was eating my, eating myself out of my, you know, it, my body was just reacting so badly. The medicines couldn't help. Now they help. I, I still need them because I have a physical a defect in my physical body that needs medicine. And I have to avail myself of that uh, in order uh, to heal and, and to stay healed. But there is a greater power that I needed to tap into. And that was the power of the 12-step program of recovery that, that helps me with uh, spiritual recovery. The other thing is the 12 steps of recovery is a program, is a we program. If you look at the steps, we. Uh, I love to look on page, uh, uh, let's see, on page 35 of the big book. And it, it talks about, um, not page 35, it's um, page Uh, well, on page 30, most of us, uh, countless vain attempts, it, it talks, it says that we know that no real alcoholic recovers. It talks about, it, throughout this book, it talks about the we. It says we, how it works on page 58. Rarely have we seen a person fail, who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. So an individual who doesn't want to accept our program of recovery. The second paragraph on page 58 our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, we collectively, what happened. So what uh, our early founders, Bill W. and the others, found is that together, binding together, they could recover. And using these spiritual steps and tools, that were brought to us by the Oxford group and adopted by the we of the program, the, the uh, AAers adopted the six uh, steps of the, the uh, Oxford group into the 12 steps of recovery. But it was we, we. When we don't recover, it's I. They are not at fault. Uh, they were born that way, those who don't recover. Uh, they and me. I was. I struggled so much uh, when I was a baby. I didn't get that that connection, that strong connection with my mother. But I wasn't constitutionally incapable of finding. I just didn't get it. But with the help of this program and my fellows, I've been able to have that humanity in me restored. So that I can uh, um, uh, 
uh, bind with other people. I can get the right relationships with people. Our stories disclose in a general way way what happened uh, and how we have recovered. If you decide you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, now any length, any length, not just to the end of your, our mind, right, to your mind, to my mind, uh, to the end, not to just to the end of what I can perceive or see or believe, but to any length, which means I have to let go, to be willing to let go. If I decide, now, maybe I don't decide I want. It says if you have decided you want what we have, you want the recovery, and are willing to go to any length, then you are ready, ready, ready to take certain steps. Then we're ready to get into the program, willing. And, of course, we balked. We don't, you know, I balked internally. I, I started doing it. Then I realized there were parts of me that were holding back. I had to be willing to let that go. As I approach that, I keep trying because there's parts of me that that uh, I I realized uh, that at 13 I, I I recall that I had tried to commit suicide when I was 13. I tried to commit suicide. I shut down to life at 13. I said I don't want to live here anymore. Uh, why? Well, life I didn't believe was worth living. There was racism, sexism, Vietnam War. There was um, uh, riots, uh, assassination. It was a dark time in our history, in our in our in our uh, world, in our culture. Recession. It was dark. My father went to Vietnam and came back, and I never saw him again. He was here. And and now, as I've gotten older and he's recovered, we've recovered, I, I see him again. I've met him again. But he wasn't there for me. My mother, of course she was in a depression, trying to live, trying to manage, trying to hold four kids together, and a, and a husband who had had uh, lived through hell and, and trying to hold it all together. And no, I didn't want to live. I was rejected by my brothers and sisters, and so I felt I had no one. And, of course, I had that experience as a baby where I didn't, hadn't connected well, and so I was, felt like I had connected with my siblings, but then they I decided they didn't like me because I was, um, I was intellectually, I was very bright, and that, sh- that was embarrassing to my older brother uh, because I did better than him in school. And he didn't. He was shamed because a girl did better than him, and so he rejected me. And and he got my other siblings to reject me because then it made him feel better. And so I felt isolated and alone. And so I decided I was going to kill myself and end this living in the world. And I uh, so in programs, of course, I had to come to terms with that. Of course, it would be difficult, very very difficult, to. Uh, stay the course day after day, um, year after year. Of course I could make a beginning and get some recovery. And then that decision would come back where I didn't want to live. And 
I I um I did con- uh, just I it, I passed out on the bathroom floor. I went in the bathroom. I took all the pills in the bathroom covered whatever I could take. I thought I'll kill myself this way. I passed out on the floor, and I woke up later, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm still living. I thought I was going to die, and I it occurred to me that I could make my life worse by trying to kill myself. And I could be in a worse situation than if I were still living and putting up with the hell I had to go through. So I decided to make the best of life. But you know what? Life was a a dredge. I mean, it was treachery. It was uh, a a slog. And it was, I, I, um, and it was soon after that that I found the food. And it was a comfort to me. But I didn't want to get fat, and so I, I, I learned tricks and different things to do to keep from getting fat. And uh, so it was a deception I lived because I was a compulsive overeater on the inside. But on the outside, I didn't look like I was fat. I was a compulsive overeater. Um, and then it didn't really catch up with me until after my children were born. Um, and then I was bigger than I'd ever been in my life. By the time I came into the recovery I have now, but I had to let go, and I had to help have, accept the help of the people in this program. I had to have human help as well as spiritual help, and quite honestly, the human help was the spiritual help for me. Uh, when I came into the program and I got the recovery I have now, um, I I had a vision after about three months of recovery. I, I recovered. It was from the day I I um, got in with this my herd of of people. I got recovery instantly, and I or recovered or I or abstinence I should say instantly, and I just began to do what they told me to do. And after three months, I had a vision, a visual. I am a very visual person. I had a visual. I think my time is up. I'm going on and on. I'm going to quit here in two minutes. I had a visual of of my sponsor and, and the program people together. Not just, it was not just me and my sponsor, but me and my herd the, together, the herd uh, holding on to me, putting my hand into the hand of my higher power, my God. And after I had been in program for a while, I realized that the the my sponsor and the people didn't take their hand away once they put my hand in the hand of my higher power solidly in order to keep my hand in the hand of my higher power. I need it, and I need today to keep my sponsor and my program buddies, my herd, in order to stay in my spiritual path, I need my herd. I need my program friends and buddies. Together, I do this program with you. I need you, and I hope you need me. And together, we will stay recovered. And with that, I pass. Thank you for the opportunity to share my recovery. Thank you so much, Sharon, for your beautiful, insightful, and inspirational presentation this morning. Thank you very, very much. 
Sharon's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. Please stay tuned for that. And now we will transition to questions and answers. If you have a question for Sharon, you can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Good morning, Laura. This is Mary Lee in Oregon, Mary Lee R. Hi, Mary Lee. Hold on. Let's see if we have more to add. Anyone else? Questions for Sharon? Star one to unmute. Mary Lee, I believe you're the icebreaker this morning. Go ahead. This is Jenny S. Jenny S. Excellent. Anyone else? Mary Lee, why don't you go ahead? Oh, good morning. I feel like I'm no longer on the Titanic. <laughs> um, Sharon, could you give us an example of your daily surrender? Okay, yes, for sure. Uh, I get up uh, early. My first thing that I I do, I like to do, and, and I... I uh, and bracketing off more time now, but is to spend time with my higher power in prayer and meditation, and um, and I've done that meditation many different ways over the years, um, and you know if you want to talk about that sometime, that would be a whole topic of a whole uh, presentation of that 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 um, you know meditation time but I have time with my higher power I do my uh, I do a reading and writing assignment I do that in the morning I call my sponsor and I, I um, for me I am a critical level uh, compulsive overeater I need my sponsor I've been uh, 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 in the OA room since uh, 1991. I've been on my current recovery path since 2001, and I call in my food and a reading assignment, reading and writing assignment every day. So I'm reading and writing, and I am in the the big book or the 12 and 12, some conference approved material every day, and I I, I give that. I I talk with my sponsor if I have any uh, major issues that are causing problems, I discuss that with my sponsor, and I do a daily 10th uh, step um, inventory uh, with my sponsor. Uh, we call it 10th step, some people call it 11th step, but it's going through the the, uh, the inventory, daily inventory that's listed, I believe it's on page 84, uh, and it's listed under the uh, 11th step uh, discussion in the big book. And then he said daily, and then I take, I take my sponsee calls, and um, I then have uh, some time where I I uh, um, uh, can do some other studies, some other prayers, some other meditation. I uh, often may have a, a hookup call, and uh, and then I get into my day, and throughout the day I make sure to take phone calls and make phone calls to program people so that I stay in touch with my program recovery. And then at night, 
I have a meditation time, uh, prayer meditation time at night before I go to bed. Thank you very much, Mary Lee. Jeannie S., your turn. Yes, thank you. Um, And thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm wondering if you could talk about step nine a little bit. Step nine says we made direct amends. And when you talked about your brother, you said that he was angry with you because you were smart and then he turned your siblings against you. So I'm guessing you had some resentments against your brother in step four. And I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about step nine, how you did step nine. Well, and that's interesting because, um, uh, you know, step nine doesn't require that uh, the other person do anything. They don't have to change. Um, One might argue that he did more harm to me than I did to him. And um, uh, he caused me a lot of pain. But the truth is, he was in a lot of pain he never would have done what he did to me if he hadn't been in a lot of pain. And it's a very tragic uh, situation. Um, and, and actually the story goes that um, we were in, um, we were, I'm African-American. We, my, we were, uh, sta- my dad was stationed in Mississippi, Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, we went to an all-white school that didn't want us there. We were the first African-Americans. They didn't want us there. I was in the seventh. He was in the ninth. And I excelled. I was just, you know, just blew the curve away in my class and was actually probably working on a ninth grade level. I wrote something that was astonishing to the teacher. She took it. She read it to my class and chided them for not doing their best. And then she took it to my brother's class. She was teaching both of us in both classes. And she read it to him. And I read it to the class. And she uh, rebuked them for not having done their best. And then she called my brother out uh, in front of his classmates, a ninth grader, and said, how could he let his sister do better than him? And uh, nothing the teacher said. I've, I've had... You know, I've been, uh, you know, I was immune to racism uh, because that we knew, you know, I lived, I hadn't, I lived in uh, predominantly white environments all my life, and uh, but my brother, his rejection was um, the end all for me. It was very, very painful, and that's that's what prompted me not to want to live any longer in the world. And uh, so my my resentment was more uh, toward racism and toward teacher, you know, teachers and those types of things than it was toward my brother. But um, I did call my brother in my step nine, and he lives in another state. And um, I talked to him, and I didn't know if he even, re- you know, if it had ever made an impact on him. But he said to me, he said, Sharon, he apologized. He said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And we cried about it. And um, he said, you know, I still to this day struggle. I've had to really, really deal with my issues around smart women. He said, at work, I see myself demeaning them, a women who are smart. 
by explaining trivial things to them to demean them. He says, I have three, he has three daughters, and I tell you, every one of them are, are, it just, it's heartbreaking how obese they are. Now, I have other nieces and nephews. None of them are as big as his, I mean, huge and getting bigger. And, um, and just, it's tragic what has happened. And so the biggest um, uh, relief for me that I've had, and I've had to go over and over the um, pain that was inflicted upon me and my family. And I've, I've, but I've, I've also had to go to counseling and because I shut down. And uh, the, the truth is, is that no one did anything to me. Um, uh, I allowed it. I opened myself up to it. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. Who else has a question this morning? Star one on mute. Hi. Judy K. Hi, it's Jeff. Jeff, I heard yeah. another. I heard another voice in there. Shoshana K. Shoshana K. Go ahead, Sorry. Shoshana. Yes. I didn't catch the last voice. Tara K. Tara K. Excellent. Okay, let's start off with Je- with Judy K. Actually, Judy. Thank you, Sharon, for your your share. My name is Judy Kay. I'm a compulsive overeater. I uh, my question is: How do you balance uh, your your OA program work with the other things going on in, in your life, such as work and family? Um, and I guess that's that's the question. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, when I first started, it was it was really difficult because I had two children, and I I realized that my relationship with food was so broken. Uh, would Would you mind uh, putting your phone on mute? It's 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 a little distracting. Yes, everybody, please stay muted. And uh, unmute when it's your time to speak. Thank you. Go ahead, yes. Sharon. Okay, thank you. So I, I, um, it was you know I had the eight month old and I had the the um, two uh, three year old and my three year old has uh, disabilities. Um, actually has Down syndrome, and so um, I was you know a constant going around to his medical medical doctors, and I had a lot of medical doctor appointments, and, and then I had a healthy child that I had to give a healthy living to, and um, and so it, it was, and, and I, I was in this rigorous program where I had to do the reading and writing and talking to, you know, four people a day, calling my sponsor, and I calling my food in and not making any changes unless I called in the food change, and 
Um, but what I did was I made, I realized that my way wasn't working. I was killing myself, and that wouldn't help my children. And um, and it wouldn't help my, you know, relation, my husband and family in any way. So I put my program first. Okay, this is what I have to do. Uh, it sure beats being six feet under in a coffin. And uh, at least if I do these things, I have hope that I can be different, that I can change, that I can get that personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. My way did not work. I was mired in a hell, and I was I was I was wrapped up, strapped up, and strapped down. You know, and I needed to cut through, and I was given away a way out. And I decided I was going to give that priority in my life. And I, I call myself an out-of-option compulsive overeater. Why am I out of options? First of all, because I've tried everything. And I ended up on death's doorstep. So I tried, every, I tried everything. So I am going to do what I'm going to do is I'm not going to try my way anymore. I don't have that. I don't give myself that option. I don't give my brain the option because my thinking got me into the mess. And my thinking isn't has never been able to free me. And so I accept that my way hasn't worked. It didn't work, hasn't worked, won't work. And so I need a new way of living. And I have been given this opportunity and I am grateful. One thing that my sponsors had me do was do gratitude every day, to live in gratitude. Well, what am I grateful for when I've got all these problems? Well, I'm, I can find 30 gratitudes. And, and they have 30 gratitudes. I have to stretch into those 30 gratitudes every day. But there's so much. I have life. And as long as I have a life, I have opportunity. I can give you 30 gratitudes. So that's what I did. Thank you. Thank you, Judy Kay. Jeff? Thank you, Sharon. You're welcome, Judy. Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, sorry, it's you're really quiet all of a sudden. I, I just wanted to ask you about... Um, so I haven't been in OA very long, um, and I'm trying to define food sobriety for myself. There's a, there are my really bad foods that if I if I go and buy some of it at the grocery store, that means that I'm I'm acting out, I'm binging. But could you kind of briefly tell me how you def- would define food sobriety? And I know it's probably different for every person. Thanks. Yes, uh, and it, it is. It is. Uh, it can be, um, but when I came into the program, my herd, everyone in my herd, um, started off by putting down sugar and alcohol. And of course, if you're still drinking, it has sugar in it. So we all put down. Every, we, you know, we put down sugar and alcohol, and um, and and wheat um, also initially uh, because of the you know, white flour and how it breaks down so easily into uh, sugar. 
so uh, that was that was given to me, and then we committed to putting down anything else that caused the problem. So just to begin, I put those things down, and and no junk food. So basically, my sponsor, to be honest with you, gave me a food plan. I didn't try to figure out. I was I was in such a bad shape. I I am so glad she drove to my house and brought me her food plan and said, set up an appointment with your nutritionist, and, and in the meantime, use my food plan. And she said, I can help you better if we're working on the same plan. And so I, I worked that plan. I knew I was allergic to dairy, so I don't eat dairy uh, and uh, soy because those are um, uh, physical allergy foods for me. And then I went to the nutritionist, and I said, what should I eat? And um, and I said, this is what I'm doing. It's working. And she changed it around a little bit because I was nursing at the time. And um, and that's how I, I did it. And you know you don't, most of the stuff out there in the world you don't eat. Potato chips, well, those things, and Cheetos and Fritos and all that stuff. Uh, and as long as you eat uh, fresh, whole foods, then you can't go wrong. And uh, anything, so... That's basically the way I was taught. And uh, and now some things, I could chew gum, and I was allowed to do that, but I found that if I chew gum, I, that made, I couldn't stop, so I had to stop chewing gum. I, I, I don't want to eat, uh, use uh, artificial sweeteners because, uh, first of all, it's not healthy, and it triggers the obsession for me. So I have to stay away from those types of things. So, but the main thing is just get started and get moving. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Shoshana Kay, your turn. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for your presentation and for everyone's service. It's Shoshana Kay in Baltimore, gracefully making my amends. And a lot of what you shared, Sharon, reminded me of the set-aside prayer that um, my sponsor and I Googled it because it's not in the big book directly um, from the AA literature that you should ask God to, your higher power, to help you to set aside what you think you already know to be open to a new experience. And I was wondering if you were familiar with that prayer um, from AA and um, if you say it or use it, I find it very helpful, and I was wondering why it was not in the big book, just trivial part of my question. Thanks. Yeah, well, they probably didn't have it back then. Somebody came up with it after they'd been, I'm, I'm assuming. I don't know why it's not in there. There's a, not, there's a lot in there, and I am familiar with the prayer, and uh, it uh, it's a great prayer. But it, it isn't it isn't in the big book. I I quite honestly I um I stick pretty much to the uh big book on most things and and the set aside prayer is fabulous. But uh it's even better, like you said, if we if we live the twelve steps then we're living the set aside prayer. Thank you, Shoshana Kay. Tara Kay, your turn. Thank you, and thank you, Sharon, for what it, for such a beautiful um, sharing today. 
Um, can't wait to re-listen. I um, working with with other people with people who what you said about your brother really kind of brought up this question and you may have kind of answered it already but um, someone who is a new person um, who's been around the program for since 93 at least and and um, has so many uh, deep problems with family, with, say, a mother who is so um, domineering and and still still is act, you know, you know, actively um, hurting hurting her her daughter her kids um you know a person who's obviously in so much pain and this lady just um i just wondered how you would guide their um progress going forward um she's going to do a you know a, um, an inventory i mean work the steps and i guess that's probably the answer but would you shed any any thoughts from your experience? Well, yeah, I just I was uh, talking to one of my sponsees this morning, and she's been in the program for I've been sponsoring her for years, and I know people some people don't like that that uh, we hold on to one sponsor for years, but I'm going to tell you some of us takes us years and years as you as you uh, can see, uh, and even by my own story the deep, deep issues and problems. And so it's good to know that I have a, uh, a new family that I can uh, hold on to and I need that daily contact. Uh, one thing that I tell all my, tell my sponsees is you need to build your herd. You need a strong network of people. You can't just depend on your sponsor. You need a network. You need a new family. And, um, and sometimes it takes a while to build that. But if, if a person is still being hurt, you have to wonder, why are you still in the situation? You know, you have to work with each one individually. And as a sponsor, we tap into our higher power, right? We, we don't go in. We can't cure ourselves, and we can't cure our, our sponsees or anyone else in the program. We offer experience, strength, and hope. But... We need, we don't ever want to go into our own mind to look for solutions. We don't want to go into psychology. We don't want to go into therapy uh, with our sponsors and, and give them what we got in therapy. Although, you know, some of the things about shame, you know, I had a, a fellow, I think it was great, she told me, you know, she's been doing shame work. Well, I really appreciate that. So I got on and, and started doing shame work, and that really was helpful. But um, my, sponsor, my sponsor didn't tell me to do shame work. My sponsor always points me to the big book in the 12 and 12. And, uh, okay, why don't you go and write about this experience? But uh, I, I like that, that book, As Bill Sees It. If you don't have it, that's a great tool because it has an index. And, and, um, and you can look up it, its topics. Uh, it's, 
resentment, fear, uh, uh, those types of things. And then you can have your sponsee read those places in the big book in the 12 and 12 and, and, then, um, and then write about it. And, and so sticking close, I, you know, I pushed my, I was talking to my sponsor, I think I've been sponsored for eight or nine years. And she says, I don't know why people say that our program doesn't, isn't in the, it doesn't stay focused in the big book because we've been working in the big book for, <laughs> for years and everything's in the big book. And, 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 and I had to push back, you know, they had some pushback where maybe they didn't want to. I'm sick of reading the big book. I knew, you know, how many years do you read it? And it's like, well, how many years do you have problems? Let's just go back. And, and because the answers and solutions are there, and we have to avail, we have to open ourselves up over and over. And, and uh, sometimes we do have to give our sponsees life uh, with, with, with the spiritual. We have to stay in our spiritual place when we're dealing with our sponsees, but sometimes we have to say something like, why are you still in this situation where you're constantly getting hurt? Maybe you need to live somewhere else. Um, maybe you don't need to go back into that over and over again. So, But we listen to our, to the, our hearts, not our heads, and when we speak to our sponsees, and we take it one by one situation at a time. Does that help, Kara? Well, I hope so. Yes, I thought I was muted, so I unmuted myself. Yes, muted myself. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but yes, wonderful. That's that's so perfect. Everything you said. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so much, Tara. And we have time for one more question. Anyone else with a question on their mind? Hi, this is Leslie in Ohio. Beth? Less please. Okay, why don't you go ahead with your question? Thank you. Yeah, Sharon, thank you for sharing. And I really got a lot out. I'm really grateful that you spoke about um, having some space in the attitude adjustment time. Um, I'm newly back in program and... Um, even with all of the suggestions, I still find myself running into um, stinking thinking and just want to know how you find that space of attitude adjustment, um, you know, between calls, between, you know, when there's nothing else, I guess, you know, how do you find your higher power in that attitude adjustment? That's yeah. my question. Yes, that's a really good question. All the questions have been fantastic. I'm, I'm impressed. I but the, the this one is um, uh, refraining from negative thinking is, uh, uh, and we find that it. I, I like I like thinking of um, the step my step three commitment. I turn my will and my life over. To the care of, of of my God, of my higher power. That's my step three commitment. That's that's when things. That's my gateway into this new living. This willingness to be different. The willingness to change. I turn my will and my life mm -hmm. over. So if I'm thinking negatively, what am I thinking? You know, sometimes it. You know, 
write them, just write down some of those thoughts, those negative thoughts. And are you staying with your step three commitment? Because these 12 steps are a way of life. It's our new way of living. And so what I, I the negative thinking, digging into um, what it is you're thinking, and then, you know, talking about that with your fellows in your, in your hookups, um, I think is, is a really helpful way. Uh, sometimes just getting, airing out those thoughts, you know, it's like dirty laundry, it needs to be cleaned up. But if you don't know, if you've stuck it under the bed, it's fumigating the room with its foul odor, you've got to go in there, pull it out, and get it into the washing machine or into the trash can. So it's it's um, it's really exposing it to the light of, of the spirit, as the big book talks about, the light of the spirit. Bring it into the daylight. Don't keep it secret. And uh, it can't live uh, once you do that and, unless it's transformed into uh, 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 something that's positive, something that's progressive that's going to move you forward because that's what this 12-step program is all about, progress, building, growing, changing, and getting better and better and better. And uh, one thing I would recommend, I'm taking, I know I've taken a long time answering these questions. They're so good, and I just please bear with me because I want to just say this. It is something I didn't say when I was um, sharing but came to me when I was preparing. And we need a new way of living and we have a new employer and and our job is to find out what God's will is for us. What is God's will for us individually? That's a personal thing. We we know in general what it is and we learn that from our fellows, our herd, our herd, we're all doing the same things. We're thinking positive, we're working the steps, we're, you know, cleaning up our past and we're doing our daily inventory. We're Getting uh, being grateful. We're doing some of the same things, but individually, personally, what is God's will for you? We have to let go. And I mean, I used to want to be, uh, you know, I had so many things, but I, I trained as a scientist, and, and that was my profession. And um, I thought once I got recovered, I would go back into that professional life in some capacity. But what I'm taught is that I have to let go of my way. That's everything. Step three, turn my will and my life, the whole slate, over. And I get a new way. Now I have to go to my higher power. What is it that you, what's your vision for me? Each one of us needs to have a vision that's given to us by God individually. And then you live into that vision. And so you don't have any place for negative when you have the vision, the glorious vision of who you are, who you are individually in this new life. And so you're constantly living into that vision. And the stuff that tries to cling to you doesn't support that vision and then falls has to fall away. And so I would say develop, work on, enhance that vision, clean up the past, Living to the beauty of the future. Thank you. That's a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much, Sharon, for 
your presentation this morning, all your personal insights and your experience has certainly been deep and profound. Thank you very much. I'm going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.